Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please turn your Bible to the Gospel of John again if you've lost your place. And at this point, we'll look at the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. Pick up where we left off two weeks ago in our consideration of this wonderful Gospel of John. In 2003, one of the five films nominated for an Academy Award in the foreign language category was a Czechoslovakian movie entitled Most. To look at it in English, we would see the word most. In Czech language, most means bridge. It's a moving story based on the home of a single father and an eight-year-old son. They were very close for good reason because the mother of the child, the wife of the man, had passed away And of course, they both loved her and missed her deeply. The father was challenged for raising a family, albeit a small family, just two, taking care of the needs of himself and his son. And he would go to work every day to his job. In this Czech city, there was a river which ran right through the middle of it. And there was a railroad track that ran over a drawbridge which he was responsible for operating. He saw to it that his son was taken care of during the day when he went to work. His son wanted to be with him all the time. Part of that had to do with the fact that he felt a certain insecurity since his mother had gone, but also because of the love bond that he had with his father. Finally, his father relented. He didn't want to take his son there because there were inherent dangers with all the mechanisms associated with the raising and lowering of that bridge. And he didn't want to put his son in any kind of jeopardy. He and his son went. The little boy was just so excited to be with his dad, and he was fascinated with the drawbridge. Of course, he had seen it in operation, but not from the control center where his father worked. And so they got into the control area and he said, Son, whatever you do, don't leave this place because there are a lot of things that could hurt you associated with the drawbridge. Do you understand, son? He said, Yes, Daddy, I understand. Well, something happened that had never happened before as it regards to the drawbridge and this particular operator. He noticed something that was amiss and he looked at it from a distance and he had to go see it up close because he had raised the bridge to allow a boat to go under and in the meantime it did not, that is the bridge itself did not respond to his efforts to bring it down using the mechanisms, the gears involved. So he went down He looked at it, and he realized that 
there was something wrong. He looked at the main gear area and could not find out any problem there. So he went across the river by boat and he looked for something on the other side and he was about to locate it when all of a sudden he heard the whistle of an oncoming train. Immediately he began to feel his heart come up into his throat. He glanced up to the control tower and the boy was watching all that was happening. He had watched his father operate that drawbridge and he got out. The little eight-year-old boy got out because he saw that something was tangled in the main mechanism and he made his way down there and his father was yelling all the time, no, no, no. The result was that the boy got there. He was trying to undo things and what happened was that he got his leg caught in one of the gears. The father was rushing, trying to get to him, and he reached a point where he knew that it was either going to be the life of his son or the passenger train. It was not a freight train. It was a passenger train. It was carrying many people, scores if not hundreds of people. He had to make a split moment decision about this. And so he did what he never thought he could bring himself to do. In favor of the hundred or so people on the train, he went ahead and was able to lower the gear and fearful that his son had been killed in that incident. And when the train passed by, what they saw was a man, this man, kneeling on the bridge off the track, of course, and he was weeping because his son had been crushed by the mechanism. Now that's a story that really is a moving story to me when I think about it as a father, but it's also instructive to us. It's an illustration for us of how God the Father loved us enough to give His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the kind of God we have. As we sang, is anyone worthy? I was taken by the phrase, God is worth, loves us. He finds us some potential worth in us at, at least when He sent His Son to die for us. The passage that we're going to look at now in chapter 15 is an extension of that kind of love to us from God the Father through God the Son. Jesus loves us too, incredibly. I doubt if there's any degree of difference between the love that God the Father has for us and that he, Jesus has for us. It's the same love. Let's go and look at John 15, verses 12 through 14 now. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I'd like to look at these three verses in some detail and then look at the significance of Christ 
laying down His life for us. This is history's greatest act of love that we see predicted here. And then as we work our way through John's Gospel, we'll have a close-up look at what that meant to Jesus and His followers. Jesus says in verse 13, This is my commandment. And this does not appear to our English reading eyes, but take my word for it, that the emphasis in that simple statement, this is my commandment, this is Jesus speaking, of course, was the word my. Jesus wanted His followers to know, and He, by association, wants us to know. If we know Him and we follow Him, He wants us to know the very same thing. This is His commandment to us. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul talks about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and he uses several different illustrations. He uses one of a soldier. He says, no one who is serving as a soldier gets entangled with civilian affairs. Why? Because he is intent on taking orders and carrying them out from his commander. Jesus is not only our Savior, but Jesus is our commander. And he was reiterating that. Those whom he was first speaking this message to already understood this, but he was underscoring it now. This is my commandment, so listen very carefully. We should take just as much interest in hearing what Christ is saying to us today that you love one another just as I have loved you. The word translated love, we've seen it over and over again in the Gospel of John. It bears being reminded again to us, and that is that this word means the sacrifice of self in the service, particularly of undeserving others. Isn't that a picture of what God the Father and God the Son collaborated together to accomplish our salvation. Isn't that a picture of the great love of God? To amplify this a bit, if you want to turn to the book of Romans, you may. We're going to look at three verses in the fifth chapter. I'm not going to comment much on these. Beginning with verse 6, the Bible says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. Paul includes himself. He uses not an editorial we, but he includes himself in his own thinking. I was helpless. And at just the right time, Christ died for me, the ungodly. There was not a single Jewish male in the whole nation of Israel who was more dedicated than the Apostle Paul to keeping the law. In fact, his own testimony in the book of Philippians chapter 3 describes himself this way, I was a Jew of Jews. That meant that he was one who was meticulous in keeping every jot and tittle, not only of that which occurs in what we call the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, but it would include all the additional, over 500 additional laws that over centuries had been attached to the law of Moses 
to make it almost impossible to keep all of those laws. But Paul would have said prior to meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, I have kept them all. And he would have done it with a great deal of pride. But in this particular case, he describes himself as ungodly and helpless. Both of those words, Paul wrote those not from a vacuum, but from his own experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he goes on to say in verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Would you think about giving one of your children to die for another human being? I can't imagine it, frankly. I'd give my life before I'd give my children's lives or my grandchildren's lives. But this is what our Father in Heaven did with the full agreement of His Son, Jesus. It's amazing. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is such a sacred statement, isn't it? We're having a sacred moment here today, frankly. It should be that way every day. And we gather and when we open the Word of God, we are standing on holy ground as it were. But when we think what God the Father did to secure our salvation, and we couple that with what Jesus the Son of God did, it's just overwhelming to me when I think about it and the great love that He shows to us. He is this kind of Lord to us for sure. Let's go back to John 15 now. We're going to center our attention on verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friend. What we need to know, three things we're going to look at today about Jesus' greatest act of love, history's greatest act of love, the first of which is that Christ laying down His life for us is so incredible in the fact that it was a voluntary decision. He was not made to do it. He had a choice in the matter. If you'll look again at John 10, we'll be going back and forth for the remainder of the morning between the 10th chapter of John and this passage in John 15, which we're considering together today. Look at verse 18, the last verse which we read earlier together. Verse 18 of John 10 says, No one has taken it, he's referring to his life, so we can insert the word life. No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus, prior to His becoming one of us, recall this please, was God. He was not a man. He was a man, a perfect man, but He was not simply a perfect man. Jesus and God the Father prior to the creation of the world, collaborated how they would save people like you and me from our sin. 
Jesus did live a perfect life. But let me just stop and say this, lest I forget it. Directed to you. Imagine that this is for you today. That there is none righteous, no, not one. Only one righteous ever walked the face of the earth after Adam and Eve sinned. One person, and that person, Jesus Christ. So, just as Paul was in his own way of thinking and in the court of public opinion in Judaism would have been considered at the top of the food chain of righteousness, he fell short of the glory of God. I hope you know that you and I came into this world with no capacity to be perfect because according to the book of Romans chapter 5, we are born with a sinful nature. But the fact of our sin becomes abundantly clear when we see how the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The best effort falls short. And that leaves us in an incredibly vulnerable position. It leaves us in the no man's land of being under judgment from God. But the good news is that Jesus Christ volunteered, knowing as God what He was going to face, knowing that He was going to have to be the place of the securing of our salvation by suffering for us. We need to be men and women also who bear in mind that we didn't find Jesus. He found us. The Bible says, quoting Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus Christ came on a search and rescue mission, and that included you and me, if we know Him. And please listen carefully to the Spirit's voice this morning. Have you depended on your own efforts at righteousness to make yourself right with God? Or have you realized your total need for Christ? Because when you understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how depraved we all are, then the result is that you feel a sense of absolute need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few moments ago before I got up to speak, the Lord flashed into my mind something that relates at this point. I remember there was a woman who came to Jesus and she somehow or another made her way into a banquet which was being thrown by a well-to-do man in a city that Jesus was visiting. And she brought herself to Him and she began to weep at the feet of Jesus. It was an embarrassing moment for the host and probably others there. It was very awkward. And Jesus just sat there rather placidly letting the woman weep on His feet. She took her hair and then she washed His feet. 
And then the man, after the woman had finished what she did, the host said to Jesus, don't you know who this woman is? And she's a sinner, basically, is what he was commenting on. And then Jesus said this, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. Paul understood that. This lady understood that. If we understand who we are outside of Christ, there's hardly any possibility of our not feeling that intense sense of gratitude for the Lord's saving us. If you've never come before the Lord in humility, realizing, first of all, that His death was voluntary. No one twisted His arm to do it. And by the way, Jesus didn't do it to get a greater reward in heaven. Remember where He was before He came to earth. He was with God. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. The Bible goes on to say in that same part of John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as, the, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love those last words that describe Jesus. Full of grace and truth. Our Lord is the merchant of grace. He wants to disperse it into your life and my life. But we have to hear Him in our heart calling us to Himself. We need to recognize that we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. It's all the work of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. What a gospel and what a Savior we have. Jesus laying down His life for us. There's no greater love. It's the greatest love ever seen in history. In His laying down His life for us, we need to remember that there was no arm twisting in heaven when the plan of salvation was devised. And then we know, Lord, that You loved us so much that You came to volunteer Your life for ours. The second thing we want to consider together about Christ's cross, His laying down His life for us, is that it's vicarious. And you say, okay, Woods, gear it back a little bit. Tell me what does that mean? Is that just so you can have three V's in your things? And I'll tell you, yes, it is, actually. I need help to remember. Well, vicarious, and most of you know what the word means, but just in case somebody here doesn't know what it means, it means substitute is really. Think of the substitute. He substituted himself. He took our place. Amazing. On 9-11, on the 96th floor of the South Tower of the Twin Towers in New York City, a man named Benjamin Clark. He was a retired Marine, and he wanted to work as a chef after he got out of the Marines. Can you imagine a Marine who's a chef? But he did, and he had a great job on the 96th floor. That morning, he was working, serving people, great 
fair. And he was as shocked as anyone else when a plane crashed into that building. And immediately he sprung into action. He did what he had done for a career as a Marine. He began to organize the people because they didn't know what had happened. They were frightened. He had sensed what had happened. It was a catastrophe and he was very calmly giving them orders as to how to get out of that particular part of the 96th floor and to a place of exit. And once he had done that, he began to gather people all over the 96th floor until all of them were on their way to the 78th floor where they could find some refuge and a further way of exiting. He was the only one who died on the 96th floor. I am really drawn to a person like Benjamin Clark. He's somewhat like Christ, isn't he? Laying down his life for people. Not thinking of himself, but laying down his life. He became a substitute for them in a sense. Not for their sins, but for their physical lives. And so, Jesus is our substitute. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, I probably quote this about every other week. You probably have it memorized by now, but I never tire of thinking of it because it's really at the heart of the gospel of Christ. It says this, God the Father, I'm interpreting a little bit, God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf. Let that sink in for just a moment. To become sin on our behalf. So that we, who are sinners, might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Here again we see the emphasis of our righteousness not being in ourselves, but in whom? In the Lord Jesus Christ. But imagine this, God the Father crucified his son. There is a term that's used for people like Benjamin Clark. It's called altruistic suicide, where people in moments of great heroism give their lives for one or many people. In the case of Jesus giving his life, it was not suicide. It was according to the plan of God for the redemption of the world. And the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that among other things, Jesus, at the behest of God the Father, became the wisdom of God for us. If you and I have any wisdom about life as God sees it, we have it found in Christ who is our wisdom. That verse goes on to say that He also is our sanctification. We know what that means. Sanctification is the idea of being set apart for God's use and being used by God. God is about the business in your life and my life after we become followers of Christ to become more like Christ. And He's constantly working in our hearts. He's moving in our hearts. 
when Jeremiah reported the thinking of God on the new covenant, which is the New Testament, which is the coming of Christ, which is the age of grace, where what we could never do for ourselves, Jesus Christ did for us when He died on the cross and then was raised from the dead. And we need to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ is that place of satisfying the wrath of God. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 3. John, the apostle, writes about it. I'm going to quote from 1 John 2.1 and hear what the Lord said through the pen of John the Apostle, the one who was, by his own description, the disciple or apostle whom Jesus loved. He said, I write these things to you, little children, that you may not sin. He's talking about the first chapter of First John, as we call it, that you may not sin. But if anyone among you does sin, we have an advocate that would be a defense attorney, basically an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and now notice the way in which John describes Him, the righteous one. He is the only righteous one. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, this same weeping prophet Jeremiah talks about the Messiah. And this is the way he describes Him in that chapter. He is the Lord who is the righteous one. And Jesus is that. We read from the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Now listen, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. That is our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. What does He do? He lays down His life for His sheep. He says that twice in the passage in John 10, verses 11 through 18. And here in John 15, 13, he says essentially the same. He substitutes the word friend for sheep. Look at it again. Greater love has no one this that one lay down his life for his friends. Every word in the Bible is there by inspiration. Really, a better word would be expiration. It's God breathed. The Holy Spirit God breathed it out. Every word is God's word. And many times, the words that we sort of skim over because they're an article or a preposition and they're not a verb or a noun is found in this simple preposition in verse 13, 4. It also is used by John in chapter 10 when he says, quoting Jesus, I lay down my life for the sheep. This word is a word which sounds like this in the original language, and you'll see some prefixes that come with it. Sometimes we shorten it as an adjective. It's the word huper. Hyper is the way it translates into English transliterates really. Hyper. Who pair? Hypertension. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you are hypertensive, but I know the name of a couple of hypertension drugs. 
amlodipine or amlodipine, depending on who's saying, that's one. Losartan, do those strike a bell with you? Hypertension, it means over, it's over normal. It's more than 120 over 80. They keep moving that down. I need to talk to somebody about that. It used to be if you were up 140 over 90, you were okay. And now it's 120 over 80. And you got high blood pressure if you're 121 over 80. You're 119 over 81. It's enough to drive you crazy. And it gives you high blood pressure thinking about it. But this is the word that Jesus uses here for. What's he saying? Get a mental picture of this. Someone who is about to be destroyed. And what does Jesus do? He comes up and he lays himself over that person. And he completely covers that person with his person. And then God the Father punishes Jesus for you. You. This is mind-blowing. For me to think that out of the 8 billion or so people in the world today, God loves me. And He sent His Son who died for me. And I'm not unique. Everyone who senses the need for a Savior and realizes that she or he is incapable of doing anything to erase sin from his or her life, this is for all of us. What a gospel we have. What a Savior who lays down his life for his friends. Think about that. Of the 11 men who still were in the company of Jesus when Jesus first teaches this, we are so blessed, aren't we, to have a private view of what happened in the most intimate moment of Christ with His apostles before He was about to be arrested, mistried, and crucified brutally for our sins. Jesus speaks of them as His friends with zero exception. The Bible says all 11 of them left once Jesus was arrested. They ran for their lives. Peter, who oftentimes showed great courage, the Apostle Peter followed Jesus from a distance. We know that John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, ended up with the mother of Jesus at the foot of the cross. So he mustered more courage than anyone else in the apostolic band to come and be with His Savior's mother there at the foot of the cross, His Lord. But Jesus laid down His life for us in the same way. Going back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Let me repeat verse 2 again. Little children, I write these things to you in order that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation. He became the propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation, the only time I ever use it is what I'm teaching from the Bible. And to try to simplify what that signifies, and it's incredible, it's an incredible truth. Uh, a propitiation 
was a sacrifice that was made to a God to satisfy the wrath of that God. Our God is a holy God. Thrice holy. He is a God of love. Make no mistake about it. This is a love story we're looking at today. But He's also a God who by His own description, we sense that maybe God the Father was in turmoil Himself about how to save us. And that's not really fair to say because He's God. But in the book of Romans chapter 3 also, He said, in order that I might maintain my justice, holiness, and at the same time be the justifier of sinners, making sinners right with myself. I sent Christ to be the propitiation for the sins of man. Wow. And so we see Jesus' death was not only His volunteering for it, in His executing what the Father gave Him to do. If you go back to John 6 for just a moment. I'd like you to see this with your own eyes rather than just hear it. John 6, 38 and 39. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. In His humanity, Jesus made Himself nothing and He became obedient in every regard to the Father. He wanted to do the will of God, but the will of Him who sent me, and this is the will of Him who sent, listen carefully, who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. What does that tell you? If you come to know Jesus Christ, who brought you to Christ? Jesus did. He found you and, uh, and Christ found you and He brought you to the Father. But what we know here is that all that the Father gives to me, Jesus says also in this chapter, everyone whom the Father gives to me, I will never cast away. I'm not going to lose one person. Talk about security of salvation. Jesus has secured our salvation. What a blessing to know that. We can't save ourselves. That's important. We're saved by grace. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we are people who, upon relinquishing control of our lives, bringing it under the Lordship of Christ, the result is, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You're never going to reject me. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in you, Jesus. That's what Paul teaches in the 8th chapter. So, the cross was a picture of the voluntary work of Christ of dying for us. Also, of the vicarious work of Christ dying in our place. And the last thing is that this greatest act of love was done victoriously. Jesus suffered unbelievably. If you go to John chapter 19, we're going to look 
at verse 30. Perhaps you're familiar with the fact that when you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, there are seven different things which Jesus said from the cross which the Holy Spirit inspired the Gospel writers to record. And this in verse 30 is considered the sixth of those seven words. Among them was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that? Darkness came over the face of the earth at a time that was impossible to explain meteorologically or scientifically. It was because God is light, the Bible says, and there is in Him no darkness. God turned His back on Jesus because He couldn't look on sin. God has His pure eyes. He couldn't look on sin. And remember, what had He done to Jesus? He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. But here we see this statement. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, He'd become parched, dehydrated. He said, it is finished. And that phrase, simple sentence, it is finished, translates one word in our New Testament. And that word was used in the marketplace in Jerusalem, contemporary to Christ's life to describe a receipt which was given to someone who had purchased an item or items from a merchant. And the merchant wrote a receipt saying, it is finished, paid in full, is what it means. Christ, when He said, it is finished, obviously there was double meaning of that. I have finished this awful assignment but it also meant I have paid for the sins of men in this act. What a gospel this is. And if we were to go to the book of Luke, chapter 23, I believe it's verse 46. I'm not sure about that. I should have had it. I had it written down somewhere and have misplaced that note. Let me see if I find it here. 23:46. that's what I thought it was. 2346, this would be the last thing Jesus said. This is the seventh word of the seven words. He says, Father, remember he had only described God as God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he didn't know God as Father because God had vacated the place where Jesus was crucified. But now, he said, is finished, Father. Father, I commit my spirit to You. Then He bowed His head and died. He was in control of His time of death. He's God, right? He did what He was sent to do. He did it perfectly so that you and I might know God as our Father and have eternal life. This is amazing, this Gospel. I want to ask you to join me one more place before we finish. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We're going to look at beginning with verse 14 in Hebrews, chapter 2. This is a summary of the gospel and the work of Christ. Verse 14 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood 
talking about us humans, he himself, that's referring to Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. In order to partake of something, think about this just a moment. He partook of it. He wasn't in the flesh yet. He was still God. He chose to partake of the flesh. And look why Jesus did this. That through death, that's what we've been talking about, a voluntary death, a vicarious death, and a victorious gift, death. Rather. Through death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Are you afraid of dying? Does it scare you? If you know Jesus, I'm not talking about the rigors of dying. I'm not talking about the difficulties associated with that. I'm not trying to make a light of that at all. But I'm talking about what lies beyond this life in death. That He might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I didn't finish referring to 1 Corinthians 1.30. I talked about how Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus also, I should have said this back when I was talking about the vicarious nature of His death. He's our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. Christ is our righteousness. And then the last word that is used in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 is this word. Redemption. It was a word of the slave market. When someone came and paid the price for the value of that person who was being sold as a slave and then set that person free, that's redemption. We, in effect, came into this world bound by our own sin. And then we have heard the Gospel. And it's our opportunity to thank God, number one, for such a Gospel. To thank Jesus the Son for His sacrifice for us. And to thank the Holy Spirit of God for retaining this message in Scripture and explaining it to us and applying that to us. Then we can receive Christ. But as many as received Him, namely Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Would you bow your head for a moment? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you able to say, I have no fear of dying because I have trusted Jesus for forgiveness. But more than that, I've entrusted my life to Him. Then embrace what I just mentioned from the book of John about receiving Him. That's true faith. Opening your heart to Him. Saying, come in Lord. Be the host of my life. Not just the guest. Be the host. If you do that, Another way of saying what you must do 
to be born again is you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from your sin. Would you just pray to the Lord? Lord, I want to know You. I want to believe in You in this way. Please, Lord, I open my heart to You. Come and be a full-time Savior and Lord in my heart. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.